Well, welcome once again to our live stream. This is our Wednesday night service for April the 29th, and we are once again in Psalm 78, and we're going to pick up on another stanza. Uh, this, of course, was a hymn that they would sing, and uh, kind of strange for us to think about singing something like this, but that's what they did. It's how they got it into their minds, and you have to Remember that back in those days, they couldn't carry around books. Books hadn't been invented yet by this point. And scrolls were very bulky and very expensive. And common people just couldn't have anything like that. So one of the ways that uh, they would transfer things into memory and uh, keep it to where they could recall it would be to put it to music and to sing it. And we even do that now to some degree. Think about some of the Bible truths and the verses that you think of and you try to recall them and uh, you uh, may look them up on a computer in a concordance and then find out it's worded just a little bit different, just enough to throw you off and then you remember it's the words of a song you were thinking of, not necessarily the verbatim words out of a scripture and yet it got the concept in your mind easy to recall and uh, that's what they were doing when the book of Psalms was written. And Psalm 78 is one of those hymns that they would sing. And it was ingraining into them the character of God, the history of the nation of Israel, things like that, that they needed to know. Now remember, Asaph was concerned that this was not being communicated properly to the next generation, that the new generation was not knowing the God of the Bible, was not knowing the history of the people of Israel, and therefore they were doomed to repeat a lot of the same mistakes. In fact, when we pick up on these verses um, in Psalm 78, I think uh, verse 40 is where we're going to uh, start in just a moment, it made me think of Ephesians 4.30. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. And then uh, Deuteronomy 6.16, which is quoted by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at uh, Massa, or Meribah sometimes it's called, and that's the place where they wanted the water. Now, um, Asaph mentions those two terms in the particular scriptures that we're going to look at. Now, the thing that uh, struck me this time, and I haven't mentioned it before, I just thought of it. Isn't it interesting that Asaph is concerned about the younger generation? By the way, aren't we all? I think every generation has doubts about the one that is coming up behind it. But Asaph does not address this psalm by saying, Hey kids, straighten up. Hey you young people, you better get your act together because I think it's the nature of people who are younger to not have their act together. In fact, here's a clue. That's why they need us. That's why the older people are supposed to teach the younger people in Titus chapter 2, because they need it. That's why children have parents. They can't parent themselves. They can't figure out life. They can't do what's right. They need somebody to tell them yes and no, and that's right and that's wrong. This is acceptable. This is unacceptable and they need to be taught. And our problem is so often we think of history and life and the way God works in the context of our generation and our memories. I get a little bit tickled when I hear people say, oh, it's worse than it's ever been before. 
we think about America and we romanticize the past. Have you ever really studied the Old West where gambling and shooting in the streets and prostitution? If you go to Guthrie and you ever take the tour there, there's one place where they'll tell you it was a brothel right on Main Street. All of that was legal at one time. There have been reforms and things that have changed and revivals even that have uh, affected society, which we would pray that it would happen um, in our own day, in our own land. But to say that it's worse than it's ever been before may not be exactly accurate. In fact, if we think about being a Christian, oh, it's harder, I heard someone say not too long ago now, than it's ever been to be a Christian. Really? I've never known anybody to be thrown to lions or thrown into prison for anything like that. We have a lot of rights and a lot of freedoms. And there's always going to be persecution. There's always going to be opposition. But let's be grateful for what we have. And let's teach our children how to respond to difficulties, how to respond to people who don't like them, how to respond to things that don't go their way because that's what life really is all about. I read a quote that is attributed to Socrates. I think it's a little bit questionable as to whether uh, he actually wrote it or not. But it is very, very old. In fact, it predates Christ, whoever it is that said it. Listen to what it says. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders, and they love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households, and they no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chatter before company. They gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. You know, you thought a lot of that was just something that came up now. You thought that was just the time in which we live. And yet you find that uh, it's always... It's always been a problem, and if there's not proper teaching and proper parenting and the uh, instilling of truth and also of authority and consequences to bad behavior, those kind of things, well, they're not going to, as I said earlier, parent themselves. So Asaph is putting this on people like maybe you and people like me. Those of us who are older, we're never finished. We don't ever just retire from teaching a new generation the things of God. In fact, as Asaph has told us in the beginning of this psalm, we are to model these things. As the children and as the younger people watch us, what do they see? As they listen to us, what do they hear? As they are around us, what kind of an attitude do they absorb? And all of this is extremely important because as someone said, it's more caught than it is taught. There are those times when little children, you think they're not listening, they're not paying attention. Boy, their ears are like radars picking up on things. There are those times when you assume that they're just bored and they've tuned you out, and they can do that. We were good at it in our day as well, weren't we? But at the same time, sometimes... There are foundational truths that are being picked up upon as they watch us handle problems, as they watch us go through difficult times, maybe like we're in now. So how is your uh, 
social distancing and quarantining gone at your house? And is your family closer? It's been interesting in talking to some people and seeing some things even on social media that some people are really bonding and they're really loving the time with their children and they're teaching and they're growing and they're learning about each other. And then I've seen some other people that, oh, their posts are so sarcastic about their children. And uh, it's almost like, I wonder, why do you have children if you hate spending time with them so much? And we need to relish these things and take advantage of these things because maybe in the past month or so that the quarantine has taken place, maybe there has been more of a transfer of values, maybe even of sharing the gospel and truths from the scripture with children. Maybe it's been happening and we won't see it and we won't know it for a long time. But these things are very, very, very important. And don't ever think that your story and your life and your attitude and all of that, that they don't matter because children are listening and they're watching. So when Asaph continues writing this, we pick up, this is a new stanza in verse 40 to 55. Here's what he has to say about the previous generations of Israel. How often they rebelled against him. It wasn't unusual, notice the word often, in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted or tested God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Can you imagine God saying that you're a pain? Uh, that's what they're saying right there. Verse 42. They did not remember His power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, remember that's just a region of Egypt, and turned their rivers to blood and their streams that they could not drink, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locusts, two types of the same species there, and he destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. And the frost there would be just another version of the ice that was falling from heaven. And a sycamore tree to the Egyptians was more maybe like we would think of a fig tree. They would get fruit off of it, not like our fig, uh, sycamore trees. Uh, verse 48, He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to the bolts of lightning. He sent upon them His burning anger fiery and indignation and uh, trouble and a band of destroying angels and he leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. Yeah, let's stop there for just a second. This is what was happening to the Egyptians before Pharaoh relented and let the people go. This is God putting Himself on display because as we have said in previous messages out of this psalm, sometimes we get the idea that God is only a loving, lovey-dovey, sentimental God. 
who just takes anything that he can get and he really doesn't have any power. He's an old grandpa in a rocking chair and he's just happy for any attention that he can get. See, that's a wrong concept of God. And if we don't really have a fear of God and teach our children to have a fear of God, they'll never know a God who is an angry God, a God of wrath, those kind of things that we don't really like to talk about just a whole lot. And what that does is it minimizes sin and it minimizes rebellion. It minimizes God. But here's another thing too. It minimizes the gospel. You see, when you understand after reading these things about God, when he unleashed everything against Egypt, understand that even as severe as all of this was, it doesn't even come close to what he would be capable of doing to them. It reminds us then that hell and the lake of fire is much worse than anything that we can even describe. It's much worse than anything we've ever experienced. Sometimes people say that life has been hellish and it's been hard and all of that kind of thing. Well, it's just a little splash of hell. If you have ever been maybe frying bacon or something like that, and you have it pop and a little bit of the grease gets you, man, it hurts, doesn't it? And you pull your hand back and try to wipe it off, and sometimes it burns a little bit. But that pales in comparison to sticking your whole hand in the grease in that hot pan. And in the same way, the little bits of God's wrath and judgment, that type of thing that comes into life that we live today, is just a tiny little splash of what hell is going to be like. As someone once said, we need to be compassionate to people that are lost because this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. And we also need to understand that when trouble comes into our lives, that's as close to hell as we're ever going to get. And we need to remember that. And so as Asaph is describing what went on in Egypt, it's pretty horrific, but it's nothing compared to what the Egyptians or any lost person is going to experience in hell. Which brings me back to the thing about the gospel. You see, if God is just a lovey-dovey God who overlooks sin and says, ah, no big deal, then everything that Jesus did on the cross is kind of minimized. Oh, it's sad, and he died, died like the thieves, you know, and then it was over. But that's not what happened. When Jesus died, he didn't die as the thief because he was an innocent one, wasn't he? Dying for the guilty. And the other two men were paying for their crimes by being nailed to the cross. And I don't mean to minimize their agony, but I'm going to say this. Their agony was nothing to what Jesus experienced because Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God that we just read about for our sins. And he was doing that while he was on the cross. So Jesus, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he was under the full, unhindered, unbridled wrath of God for our sins. And that's what he experienced. Much worse than what the Egyptians experienced and certainly much worse than what the two thieves experienced or anyone else had ever experienced in crucifixion. So think about that and think about and teach your children that the sins that we commit are not just something that God dismisses and says, no big deal. Jesus paid dearly for those sins 
when he was on the cross. So deep and great is the Father's love for us that he would punish his own son in a degree that we can't even fathom, to the degree that the Egyptians couldn't even fathom. And if we don't get that and understand that about God, we tend to kind of minimize or dismiss the gospel. Let's not do that. Now, there's a very important word as we pick up the reading here that you should not overlook. It's in verse 52, and it's the word but. It's a con, uh, con, contrast. I know I get the word in a minute. It's a contrast to what happened before. The Egyptians got the brunt of God's wrath, his anger, his displeasure for the way that they had treated the Israelis. What does he do to the Israelis? Look at verse 52. But he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. And he brought them to his uh, holy border, the promised land, Canaan, the land promised to um, Abraham. This mountain, which his right hand had acquired, the Mount Sinai and all of that, and the hill country in Israel, those kind of things, a lot of imagery there. And verse 55, he also drove out the nations before them, the Canaanites. He allotted them an inheritance by survey. They drew boundaries for each tribe in their land, their own land. And he made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Uh, that word can also be translated to dwell in their houses. Think about it. Slaves dwelling in their own house, on their own land, in a place that God had provided for them, and their enemies are driven out. That's a picturesque thing there. Why is that different than the Egyptians? Were the Jews any better than the Egyptians? And the answer to that would be no. I remind you, the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's everyone. I remind you that Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And then what did he say? To the Jews first. I've heard people when I was younger say that the Jews did not need to be saved in the way that we do. They had their own way. Well, Paul sure put himself in a lot of problem with the Jews because he never said that. He would always tell them they needed to be saved. He would tell them that Jesus was their promised Messiah and reason with them from the scriptures how Jesus was the Messiah and that only he could be the Messiah and he paid dearly for all of that. You see, Jews are sinners just like Gentiles and Gentiles just like Jews. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we know that when we die physically, we're either going to go to heaven or we're going to go to hell. There's no in-between, there's no purgatory, there's no limbo, there's nothing like that. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, absent from the body, and uh, be in the uh, torment in hell. Read Luke 16 sometime about that. Now, think about this. Why did God treat the Israelis differently? Why do we find that word of contrast in the word but with his people? And there's the key. 
The Jews were his people. Now, why were they his people? Because they had done so well, because they were mighty in number, because they had great potential? No, in fact, I believe it's in the book of Deuteronomy, God even tells them, I did not choose you because you were uh, mighty in number or anything like that. He did it just because it was the good pleasure of his will. And he made a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham was the only one, really. Uh, there wasn't anything powerful about Abraham. There wasn't anything that was mighty about Abraham. Just one guy. Just one guy. He wasn't going to drive out the nations. He was never going to possess the land. But God said, your descendants will. He even told Abraham that they're going to spend 400 years in slavery, and then I'm going to bring them back. So Abraham, you uh, just rest and chill out. I've got this, and I'm going to make sure that your descendants, people with your DNA, are going to be back on this land that I have promised you. And that's the story that we find here that Asaph is reminding the Jews of his generation of. This is what you've got to teach the children. Now, when we started off the verses, he talked about uh, grieving the Lord and testing the Lord. And I want to just make four brief points about what it means to grieve the Lord. And first of all, we find out by looking at these verses that God is grieved by short memories. And all of us as humans, we tend to have long memories when we've been done wrong. I mean, uh, I could take any of you and ask you to describe sometime in elementary school when somebody hurt you, bullied you, made fun of you, or a teacher treated you unfairly, and all of you will have at least one story. And it may be something that you uh, remember from when you were maybe eight years old. You don't remember world events. You don't remember the temperature. You don't remember anything else that happened. You don't really remember the subjects that you studied that day, but you remember what that teacher said, don't you? And you can still feel it. You remember what your mom or dad said to you, and you still feel it. You remember what the bully on the playground said, and you still kind of feel it. All of us have those things. We have long memories when we've been done wrong. But isn't it amazing how short our memory is when somebody does something nice for us? I know there are exceptions to that, but think about it. For every one act of kindness that you remember that someone did, I'll be willing to say there's probably a hundred or more that you've forgotten about. It's amazing that we think about, you know, what have you done for me lately? And lately is kind of different for different people. Some people, it's within the last five minutes almost. Sometimes we look at God and we forget what he has done for us. And that's exactly what Asaph is talking about here. These were the redeemed people chosen by God and brought out of Egypt. And they were sinners just like the Egyptians. But God has chosen to show them grace and to show them mercy. And instead of punishing them like he did the Egyptians, he takes them and he leads them out. Did you notice when it said he led them out, he led them like sheep? You don't get behind sheep with a whip. You don't get behind sheep with a club and push them and shove them and yell at them. You don't herd them, maybe like you do cattle or something like that. In fact, you'll notice he uses the word he led them led them. You get out in front of the sheep. You lead them and you protect them. And all of this is talking about the special privileges 
that the Jews had even in Egypt as God was delivering them. But you know what? As soon as they got out into the wilderness, all of their joy subsided. All of their celebration ended. Because they're at the Red Sea, the Egyptians are coming, and all of a sudden now they're panicked. When they get into the wilderness after the Red Sea, they get to a point where they don't have water and they panic. They get to a place where they don't think they're going to be fed. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And God gives them manna and feeds them, but they're forgetting all about that. Every step of the way, they tended to forget about the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God before. And maybe some of that has come out in you during this time. What are we going to do if the oil and gas industry collapses? What are we going to do if our jobs go away? What are we going to do if we get sick? What are we going to do and how are we going to handle it? And we forget about the sustaining grace of God and His provision before. It's interesting how the people of God today, we can tell stories about when we were young or when our, uh, we were being raised by our parents, about the times when uh, hardship came upon us and God provided for us. Well, why don't we have that kind of faith today? Because like the people of Israel, we tend to have short memories and we forget what God has done for us. We forget about the death of Christ for our sins. We forget about the presence of the Holy Spirit, the promises in the Word of God. It's more, what have you done for me lately? And Asaph tells us that when the children of Israel did this, it grieved the Lord. You suppose an unchanging God is still grieved when we have such short memories. Secondly, God is grieved by uh, when, uh, us undervaluing His words or His works. When you um, notice, He says, The day when He redeemed them from the adversary, when He performed His signs in Egypt and marvels in the field of Zoan, and begins to talk about all of those. You know what the people of Israel were saying in the wilderness? Big deal. What does that do for us now? So what? We've heard about all of those great stories, and yeah, they were wonderful. And sometimes we kind of do that, yeah, oh, today. Yeah, sure, David killed a giant, but what does that do for me? And instead of seeing the power of God and having our faith built up for now, if God can use a junior high kid to kill a giant and liberate the armies of Israel, if God can part the Red Sea and get His people through it and drown the Egyptians, then why can He not handle what we're going through today? Now, I think this is one of the reasons why biblical prayers tended to be a little bit different. Go back and look in the Old Testament and even look in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And one of the things you'll notice that when they prayed, they didn't say just, Oh God, you've got to get me out of this. Even in Acts, I think it's the fourth chapter when they're under persecution, uh, the first thing they did was to recite the works of God in the past. And when they would begin to think about what God had done, His power uh, that He had shown in great works in the past, it put everything into perspective. For example... If you and I were under the gun and we were about to be, um, I don't know, maybe in prison for our faith, and word has come out that they're going to raid our church and they're going to take us away, and we have a prayer meeting, if all our prayer does is pour out our fear and our panic to God, now how does that help us? 
But if we do what they did and we said, Oh God, you created the universe out of nothing. Oh God, you brought your people through the Red Sea on dry land and then you drowned the Egyptians. Oh Lord, you put your people in the land that you had promised Abraham. Oh Lord, you're the one that sent your son. You're the one that raised him up when the pains of death were trying to hold on to him. Oh Lord, you're the one that sustained the apostles and worked mighty miracles in the past. When you start doing that, what happens? God gets bigger and your problems get smaller. And a lot of times what happens is our problems loom before us and God seems to be smaller. It's almost like we're looking in the wrong end of the binoculars, aren't we? And so when we think about what God has done and pray about it, we're able to say, okay, God who created the universe out of nothing, we've got a little problem over here, a problem that's not hard for you to handle and a problem that you can take care of even if it's your will for us to go through it, we're trusting you, you're bigger than the problem, you're bigger than the situation. You see what I mean? God calls upon us to remember His works and to value the works, which is point number two. Well, these people did what we do. They undervalued the works of God and that grieved the Lord and uh, brought tremendous negative consequences on the people of Israel. God wants us to remember. Number three, God is grieved by ungratefulness. They should have looked, they should have seen that the way God treated the Egyptians, God had every right, every right to do that to the Jews as well. Except that God is not a God who forgets His covenants. God had called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He had told him, I'm going to show you a land and I'm going to give you that land. Remember he told him at one point, everywhere you walk, it's going to be yours. Your descendants are going to live upon this land. Now times had changed. Hundreds of years have gone by. But God hasn't changed. And God hasn't forgotten his promises. And God is remembering what he said to Abraham. And he is literally fulfilling it. And this generation of Israelis literally saw that fulfilled. And God treated his people differently than he treated the world. And I want to tell you today, God is treating his people differently than he treats the world. The world has no hope. The world has no connection to God. And the world, even when they do try to make a connection with God, if it doesn't come through the cross of Jesus Christ, it's a prideful, blasphemous thing. And what happens? Well, God is so kind, he makes it rain on the just and on the unjust. We know that. And there's a lot to where the lost people of this world ought to be thankful to Almighty God, but they're not. And when you look at how they are alone and they are hopeless and they don't have any promise, they don't have any power in anything they do, they are floating along like logs on a stream, dead in trespasses and sins, think about all of that. But in Ephesians chapter 2, when it describes how we once were, it uses two words, but God. And it's almost like what the scripture is saying here. Treating the Egyptians one way, but God treated his people differently. And that's what God has done for us. We have the promises of God. We have the presence of God. We have past experiences, not only in our own life, but of believers for 2,000 years. We have the word of God to guide us, the Holy Spirit within us, 
and all of the promises that God is going to take care of us. We of all people ought to be the most optimistic, happy people on the face of the earth. Why? Because any time a difficulty comes up, it's an opportunity for God to show His power, to show His glory, and to show His mercy, grace, and love upon His people. But you see, we tend to be like the people that Asaph is writing about. We are ungrateful for any of that. We're ungrateful for the prayers that God has answered. We're ungrateful for the promises that we have literally seen unfold in our lives over the time that we've been living. We are so very ungrateful if God doesn't perform exactly the way we want Him to perform. I was listening to a sermon the other day by a, an old friend who's with the Lord now, Ron Dunn. He preached here a couple of times. And he said that whenever people say, boy, God really showed up and God is moving, he said, well, when is God not here and when is God not at work? His point was that so often we only get happy with God when God starts to behave the way we want Him to behave. This is what the children of Israel were doing, and so they were not grateful for the works that He had done for them that we read about and the difference in the way He treated them. And then the last thing, God is grieved when fulfilled promises are not enough. Slaves inhabiting their own lands... Who would have thought it? Slaves dwelling in their own tents. Who would have thought it? Slaves dwelling in a land in peace. Who would have thought it? Previous generations of Jews in Egypt had forgotten about the promises, had forgotten about the covenants, had forgot about everything God was going to do. And this generation gets to experience it. But you know what they did? The same thing that we do. I'm thankful for it, but it's just not enough. And the Bible tells us that we're not to be covetous because that's idolatry. And being covetous is wanting what you are not supposed to have. And you look and you say, well, they have it. Why can't I have it? And all of a sudden, <coughs> your focus becomes something other than the goodness and the grace of God. And so when we find uh, the book of Judges, for example... That after Joshua, the people are in the land, and you know what? They forgot about everything that they had uh, been taught, and they forgot about everything that they should have lived by, and they did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king, there was no authority in Israel to uh, get them to do anything else. Why? I think you see it because the seeds had been sown, and they had been shepherded, they had been taught, they had been led to believe that that was normal by previous generations. And Psalm 78 is calling previous generations as well as present older generations like me to account, what are you teaching the children? And are they seeing these things that we just read about in life and hearing those things so that when they grow up and are on their own, they forget God and they do what is right in their own eyes. What a horrible thing. Let's pray together and let's ask God to change that. Heavenly Father, as we think about this and how terrible it is and we watch the downward spiral of our own culture, could it be that you're calling upon us? Maybe some of us that are in my generation that are getting older 
And maybe we can finish well. Maybe we can have more impact than we think we could. And maybe, Lord, that at the end, like Samson, we could finish with a flourish and finish with power and finish with great faith. I pray that we could. And I pray, Lord, that these things that the children of Israel did that were so disgusting to you, that grieved you, that pained you, that tested you, oh, Father, forgive us and give us grace not to pass that legacy on to this new generation. And only by your power can this be done. And Lord, we pray for our children. We pray for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Oh, Father, save them. Father, teach them. And Father, draw them to yourself. And let us please be a help to your work of grace and not a hindrance to it. And we pray this by grace through faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this coming Sunday, we are going to be meeting in the auditorium. And we're going to have things set up so that you can still kind of keep your social distancing there. Uh, there won't be any food, there won't be any drinks or anything like that. And there's also not going to be a nursery. And I know that's a hardship, but they're asking us not to do that for at least two weeks. Now, uh, the governor has said if the numbers for this COVID virus start rising, we'll go back to things that we've done before. So let's pray that that doesn't happen and pray that we're able to get back to a normal schedule and everything before too much longer. So uh, we want to invite you to come at 1015. If you are not able to make it, um, and if you are an at-risk person, uh, I would encourage you just to worship with us by live stream. We'll still be carrying on our live stream schedule, and um, we'll have a great time. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing you one way or another. And in the meantime, carry on and press on. And may the Lord bless you, keep you strong and healthy, and take care of every need that you might have. The Lord really is indeed our shepherd. God bless you, and thank you again for watching.